And let's sort of uh, get on the runway a little bit. And if you weren't with us in last week's study, as we began to look at this letter to this particular church, I'll just uh, tell you that this is a this is a church that is commended, one of two of the seven churches that is commended. And in the commendation here, it's actually very, very sweet because it is a church in a very difficult scenario in Philadelphia at the time, and it says that they were centered upon the Word of Christ, they persevered in the Word of Christ, and they were steadfast all the way to the end. So Christ promises them a few things which we'll look at tonight, and it is an absolutely marvelous letter. It's an encouragement to us as a church because it, it does mean then that the main purpose for God's people is, is to be exalting Christ and therefore listening to His Word, submitting to His Word. And so we called the church at Philadelphia the Word-Centered and Steadfast Congregation. Totally Word-Centered, totally focused on God's truth, obeying it and being steadfast in it over the long haul. Now you remember that um, Christ, when he sends the letter through the messenger here, gives himself again titles, and in this particular case, he is wanting them to understand his absolute supreme lordship, because as they read the prophecy, like all the other churches, they note what is going to happen, and yet they need to know that he is the Lord of what he promises. He's going to make some amazing promises in this letter. They need to know that he is Lord over those promises, that he can fulfill them. He has the power and the will and the might to make it happen. The forces of evil are going to be massive. The prophecy itself at large, once you've finished reading it, it demonstrates to your own heart and mind the shock and awe of what is to come. And God's people must have comfort in the studying and reading of this prophecy. This particular little church has given some specific promises as it relates to their own faithfulness, and they need to know that the Lord of glory himself doesn't promise these things capriciously. He does not promise them superficially. He promises them perfectly, and he will fulfill them and has the power and might and will to do it. And so you note there that he speaks of his lordship right out of the gate. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says these things. This is who he is. He is a holy Lord over his church. He is a true Lord over his church, and he is a supreme Lord over his church. This is comfort upon comfort for God's people when you read what is to come. Now, in this third little section of his title, he says he has the key of David, and he opens and no one will shut, and he shuts and no one opens, and then he begins to unfold the details of this commendation and these promises. So I called this section the supreme lordship of Christ over his church. And in this supreme lordship, he makes some promises to them. Notice verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Familiar language they had just read. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold... I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. And because you have kept 
the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, again familiar language, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, that is to say ears of faith, a soft heart, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, to the churches. That'll become important later as we talk about some of the different views of verse 10. So what you have here are some amazing promises to this sweet little congregation, this vulnerable little congregation. The first promise, we'll call it a promised glorification. A promised glorification, or we could say a promised preservation all the way to the end. Now, I, I particularly love this promise because I want to know that when God bars the door, having brought me into redemption, nothing can take it from me. I love the doctrine of eternal security. I love the doctrine of assurance, absolutely. I love the way the Spirit of God works in, his, in my life through His power as sin is put to death and as the Spirit of God draws me back to that intimate relationship with the Father, Romans 8. When I'm in sin, He pulls me back and I cry, Abba, Father, I want restoration. I love the doctrine of assurance that grows as my life begins to become like Christ's. But I absolutely treasure the doctrine of eternal security, which is different. The doctrine of eternal security, though, related to assurance is different because this is God's promise that you cannot be lost. And here, to this precious little congregation, he makes this first promise, and it is a promised glorification or a promised preservation all the way to the end. Notice, he says, first of all, the kingdom is yours, basically. How do we know that? Well, remember back in verse 7, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. This is a reference to the Messiah's reign and how he will sit on the throne of his father David forever. That is to say, he is the Messiah of God's people. And of course, this church was being flown at by Jews, Jews that persecuted them heavily, Jews that put them through some severe kinds of tests and the text indicates that they did not deny his name even though they were put to that test, verse 8. So here is a reference in verse 7 to the kingdom and who has the, who's the gatekeeper? Who has the keys? It is the Messiah. He opens the gate of the kingdom to those whom he redeems and he shuts it for those who are going to be outside of it. And so essentially they're promised in verse 8 that they are going to be glorified. They are promised that they are going to make it to the end. The kingdom is yours. I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. These Jews who are coming against you, they cannot declare you morally bankrupt. They cannot declare you outside of the kingdom. They can't perform some interdict and keep you from God. They are the ones outside. You have kept my word. You're in. And if you're in, you cannot be put out. And if they're out, they cannot come in. This is the supreme lordship of Christ in promising glorification. 
You say, why is this significant to this church? Well, notice that they're vulnerable in number. Notice he says that you have a little power and you've kept my word. It's a, it's a strange statement and commentators disagree on it, but it seems to me that if we're talking about the kingdom and we're talking about actually arriving there and actually being preserved by God to the end so that your salvation cannot be lost, essentially what he's saying is you're vulnerable in the sense that you, you look powerless, you, you look as though you cannot be sustained, you can't get there, you won't be steadfast, and, and actually the persecution that comes against you will snuff your faith out. You will not be able to hold your ground. You will not be able to endure the suffering and the affliction. You're going to waver. You're going to actually apostatize. And he says, you're vulnerable. Some commentaries even, even think this just means a, a small congregation, a bunch of believers huddled together in a small group in Philadelphia and a large contingent of the Jewish leadership and elite of Israel who are against them, but they're not actually those who are part of God's covenant people. In fact, Jesus says they say that they are Jews and are not, but they lie. Whatever is going on there, somebody, a whole group of them with a lot of power and a lot of clout and a lot of influence, maybe even political ties so they can bring the government against this little tiny congregation, they are using all of their influence, and they are pulling all the stops out to come against this little congregation, and they say they're part of the covenant people of God, and yet God says they're liars. They're shut out. You are in. You might have a, a little number of you, so you're vulnerable in number, but your faith, it, it is proven, is immovable. Notice you have a little power, but you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. That's right. When God promises them the kingdom because he has saved them, it has all the theological freight behind it of our eternal security. First of all, that is decreed before time began. Ephesians 1, verse 4, he has elected a people for his own possession. Ephesians 3, verse 11, the eternal purpose was carried out in Christ Jesus. So it is established by divine ordination. They can't be lost. And it is involved with a gracious adoption. The believer's been declared the child of God, Romans 8. A permanent part of the divine family. You cannot be removed from the divine family. Moreover, we are in vital union with Christ. You cannot be torn from Christ. Galatians 2.20, we're crucified with Christ. Therefore, united in the likeness of his death and in the power of the life of resurrection, Romans 6, verse 5. So it is eternally decreed that we are secure in him. We are adopted into the family and cannot be separated from his family. We're a permanent part. We are in vital union with Christ. And if that weren't enough, it's permanent because we've been declared righteous in his sight. Once you put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, you are declared by God in heaven before the divine bar of justice, righteous covered with the righteousness of Christ. You cannot have that reversed. You are declared righteous, and therefore you are covered permanently. Your sin is dealt with. Your guilt is covered. It is paid for, fully atoned for, past, present, and future. How in the world could your salvation not be secure? All of this is freighted into this promise of glorification for this sweet little church. They've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They've been sealed with him, Ephesians 1. 
And so they will persevere. What a great encouraging promise. Oh, I know the people are coming against you. Yes, but I am the holy Lord, the true Lord, the one who has the key of David, the messianic promise. I am he. And I shut those out and they'll never get in. And I shut you in and no one will ever open the door and take you out. I know your deeds. I have put before you an open door no one can shut. You are in the kingdom and you are eternally secure. You will persevere. I will preserve you. That's what verse 10 then has as its backdrop when we get to discussing whether or not they will go through this time of testing. God's promise is that they are to hold fast and he is doing everything he can to make sure they will hold fast. It's interesting that in verse 11 he says, I'm coming quickly, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. I find that very fascinating. He's telling them, stay faithful so that no one actually steals your salvation from you, but he's already promised them that they're not going to have anything but salvation. They're going to get there. I have an open door. No one can shut it. You're in. And I want you to remain steadfast from here on out. What a great, great demonstration of that tension we live in where we're promised what God has given to his elect. We are eternally secure. And yet the means by which we are secure is our steadfastness in the commands, which by the way, he gives us the power to do. He promises it, commands it, gives us the power to do it, strengthens us along the way, picks us up from our weaknesses, strengthens us in our victories. We go all the way faithful to the end as a demonstration of his grace and his glory, and all the while we're steadfastly striving. This is the tension, and you see it even here in this letter. Hold fast. Don't let anyone steal your crown. But I've, I've opened the door, and no one can close it. You're in the kingdom. This is a promised glorification for this vulnerable little congregation that is immovable in its faith, even though tested. The second promise is a promised vindication. A promised vindication. Verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and they're not, but lie about it, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. This is a reference to the wonderful kingship of Christ on his throne. Every time the millennial kingdom is referenced, you have these wonderful changes that sweep across uh, the earth in the reversal of the curse, one of which is in the 60th chapter of Isaiah where it says that the nations will see God has restored Israel and brought all of the nations of the Gentiles into his millennial kingdom, and all of the kingdoms will come and bow down to God's people, all of them. The enemies of God will bow down, no matter who they are. You say, will there be enemies of God in the millennial kingdom? They will be much feigned. They'll fake worship, uh, Zechariah 12 to 14 says. They will fake worship, and then when the Lord on his throne exposes that they won't come up to worship, he will send judgment upon them and chasten them. Evil cannot reign on the earth when Christ is on his throne, but there are those who are unbelievers in the millennial kingdom that are coming out of the tribulation period as, as unbelievers, and 
They actually go into the millennial kingdom in their natural state, and they have children, and they develop families, and a thousand years later, you have some generations that Satan's still able to deceive. Those who are unbelievers will be part of nations that may not come up and worship Christ except in pretense, and he has to chasten them, the prophet Zechariah says. But those will come and bow the knee to God's people. Why? Because of what it says here. I want them to know that I have loved my people. Your, your life, your salvation, my love for you, your love for me will be vindicated when Jesus Christ comes and sits on his throne. All the nations will come. Your oppressors will bow before you, Isaiah 60, 13 and 14. God's glory and salvation radiate from Jerusalem to all the peoples, and the city will be the praise of the earth, Isaiah 62, verse 7. And God's going to also give the people of Israel honor and praise, quote-unquote, all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, Zephaniah 3, verse 20. The prophets spoke of it. This is a promised vindication. The nations will bow down before you. It's interesting, Isaiah 49, verse 23, they will lick the dust at your feet. The nation or the kingdom that will not serve you will perish, Isaiah 60, verse 12. There's vindication. Why? Because the Lord is the Lord of glory. Colossians, or Philippians chapter 2 says, at the name of Jesus, at the title of his lordship, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And the salvation of God's people will be vindicated. All the tongue wagging, all of the finger wagging, all of the persecution, all of the hatred and bitterness, when Christ sits on his throne, God's people will be exalted and Christ will be vindicated in his salvation of them and all other peoples will bow their knee before the Lord of glory and before his people. That's an amazing promise and it's for one reason, he says, to make them know that I've loved you. <laughs> I don't know if you ever think about that reality. The Lord Jesus Christ loves us. And when he comes in his kingdom, he's going to look every enemy in the eye and tell them that he loves us and that he saved us, and that he drew us to himself, and that he redeemed us and brought us out of the pit, crowned us with love and compassion, so Psalm 103 says. He loves us, and I, I find it wonderful that in the promise of vindication here, there's no sense in which we get to say, oh yeah, well our enemies are going to bow at our feet. No, because the purpose isn't to exalt us, the purpose is to exalt the love of redemption. Redeeming love, Christ's love. And I've loved you. I set my affections on you. When you were nothing, I called you out of the mire. When you were thrown out, Ezekiel 16, good for nothing, I said, I want you to live. I brought you into the palace. So there is a promised glorification to this sweet little church for having stayed 
word-centered and steadfast. And there is a promised vindication to this sweet little church in that God's people will be reigning with Christ and all the enemies of God will bow the knee to God's people. And even Israel was promised that all the nations would bow the knee before Christ the Messiah and even Israel's enemies would recognize that she was the special love of Messiah. Marvelous promise. You know, there's just something in the believer that, that knows that's got to happen. I mean, the Lord must be vindicated. His name must be vindicated. All this evil, don't you ever sort of sense that rising in you sometimes? Not as a sense of human justice. I'm not interested in social justice or human justice or my version of justice, which is always tainted with selfishness. I mean, there's a divine justice that even for the Christian, as the Spirit of God is transforming us, it just starts to rise up in you. You just know it must happen. Satan must be, he must be judged and judged in such a way that everything that ever came against Christ is reversed and his name exalted as it rightfully ought to be exalted, it just rises up within the believer's heart. Lord, somehow, some way, at some time, all this evil must be righted. It must, because you are God, and you are beloved, and you are the Lord of glory, and you deserve that, and your redeeming love is rich and incomprehensible and must be elevated, and it must be put on display. You must be put on display. Everything about your purposes must be magnified. It just rises up within the Christian. In the context of a little tiny group of people who've stayed steadfast, here it is, a promise of that vindication, that very thing. What an encouragement to them. And if that weren't enough, then they have a promised extraction. A promised extraction. Look at verse 10. Amazing. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I love the fact that he personalizes it with the pronoun, my perseverance, my steadfastness. Christ went all the way in defeating sin. He loved his people to the nth degree. He, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, went all the way to the end. His people are called to do the same, to suffer all the way as he did in their striving against sin, Hebrews chapter 12 says. And so his steadfastness, reflected in his people's steadfastness, ought to be kept, and they've kept it. And because of that, he says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That particular hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you from the hour of testing. Now this leads us then to this great discussion of those texts in Scripture that indicate that the church has a special particular plan on God's timeline. And that particular plan involves, as all of the tribulational, uh, the, the rapture views and the tribulation assume or accept, it involves a taking away or a catching away to be with the Lord. In fact, he says here, I will keep you from the hour of testing and of course, the nature of the protection here is, I will literally keep you out of it. I will keep you out of it. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. 
But this leads us then to the discussion of the promise of God that the church will be with the Lord or caught up to be with the Lord. Some notable texts. You have uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's just look there for a moment. Again, familiarizing ourselves with the territory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul has to write to help the confused believers here because there were some who believed that the second coming had already happened. And if the second coming had already happened or or Christ was indeed going to return imminently and some of their relatives had fallen asleep, either confusion fits because he talks about it here and then he talks about it in chapter 5 and then 2 Thessalonians, clearing up their end times confusion, he wants them to have comfort about those who have already died. Look, they haven't missed anything. They haven't missed Christ. They haven't missed the kingdom. They haven't missed his glory. They haven't missed uh, when he comes in his appearing, being a part of that. They haven't missed it. And so he says in verse 13 of 1 Thess 4, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are dead, asleep being a metaphor for death, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So they were uninformed, or confused at least. And what was the particular confusion? The Jews that dogged their heels, those that were against this brand new congregation, were saying to them, look, the resurrection has already happened. Christ's appearing is parousia. It's, it's already done. The, 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 those who've died have missed it. Those who've died are not going to be a part of it. And even if it hadn't happened, they are already dead. They're going to miss it anyway. Both sides of the confusion, it seems, existed. And so when they had loved ones who died believing in Christ, they believed that they had no hope. And he said, look, I don't want you to grieve like that. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, there's the language, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord won't precede them. They're actually going to be caught up with the Lord before we are, or at the same time, but with us and And even in this sense, if you want a technical order, we go second. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be, there it is, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Here is where we get the idea of a catching away, or uh, the Latin term from which we get our English term, rapture. This is a term that means to be caught up, to, take, to be taken up. That is the basic term. You see also a, a reference to this when Jesus was with his disciples in John 14. He said, look, I'm leaving you, but I don't want your heart to be troubled. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. At that where I am, there you may be. My Father's house has many dwelling places. I'm taking you there. I'm going to prepare it. I'm coming back, and you're going to go there. There is a reference to God's people being with him in glory, and and we'll sort of reference that particular passage uh, the next time we jump into the study and unfold more of it. You also then have 1 Corinthians 15, just looking at that for a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, you remember this is a text that speaks about how we are transformed by resurrection power. Death has no victory over us. 
And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that there is this mystery that he's telling them about. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. In the context of death being swallowed up in the victory of new resurrection life and in the context of of the catching away of God's people, there is this wonderful transformation that takes place. So here you have some general references to what we call the catching away of the church. Now the question then comes, when does this happen? Because going back to Revelation chapter 3, the church at Philadelphia, because they've been steadfast in the word, there is a promise here of extraction of some kind. In some way, the verb here means to preserve or to protect and and put together with the compound preposition, they're protected out of or preserved out of, literally. The church is promised that it will be kept from the time of testing. Some would say they're preserved while going through it or preserving from within. That would be the view that says the church is going to go through the tribulation, the post-tribulational view, and we will be preserved, that is to say, our faith protected while going through it. And so the question then becomes for us, is this a reference to a catching away of the church before the tribulation period? If the testing referred to here is the tribulation period, and I believe that it is, then is this a promise that the church will leave before it happens? Or does it mean, as some believe, that the church is preserved from within or going through it? Not outside of it, but from within it. Some commentators argue that since the the preposition ek, or the word from which we get out of, that since it is just speaking merely of motion, that it must mean, or it could mean very strongly that we will be in the tribulation and be preserved going through it in that forward motion as the tribulation and its horrors proceed. Unfortunately, although although there are good um, sort of uh, extra biblical pieces of literature that might indicate some of those things with regard to that preposition, the history of the meaning of this particular preposition speaks of a position of being outside of something. It most often speaks of being outside of something. Being outside of its object with no concept of being actually preserved through it. So it seems to to us, just at least initially upon the reading, the most natural reading is that this is a promise to keep them outside of what is called the time of testing. In secular literature, this preposition is also used to mean that same thing, to be kept completely outside of something. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, Proverbs 21, 23, takes that same sense. The one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble, keeps it outside of trouble. There's no existence of uh, the soul within the trouble in Proverbs 21, 23, when the Greek translated the Old Testament. And so it was common knowledge then in that particular time period for them to think in terms of being kept from the trouble that can come to the soul or keeping your soul from the trouble, completely out of it. There are places in the Old Testament where you have that same concept where the idea of being kept from something is not to go through it, not from within it, but to be kept completely outside of it. 
Similar texts in the New Testament indicate the same thing. You have in the book of Acts 15.29, the Gentiles are told to keep themselves from the practices that offend the Jews. Same idea, same use of the same concepts, to keep themselves outside of the practices that offend the Jews. They are not already doing those things, so it's not at the idea of keep yourselves from uh, offending them while doing them. No, never start doing them. Keep completely from them. Again, it was just common knowledge that that's how you typically used this particular preposition. In the 12th chapter of John's Gospel, verse 27, who, by the way, is the same author as this revelation, Jesus prays, Father, save me from this hour. Did he mean preserve me within and through the cross? Or did he want the cross to be uh, taken away altogether when he prayed that? Well, we know from the synoptic gospels that Jesus pleaded with the Father to let the cup pass from him. Matthew 26, Luke 22. He was asking the Father to find another way. He was asking the Father or appealing to the Father if there were another way, if there were another way than him bearing a foreign guilt he'd never felt, then please, Father, bring about a different way. Keep me out completely from this hour. Which, of course, you know then he submitted to and said, not my will, yours be done. Again, that idea of keep me from this hour was to keep me out of it, not preserve me within it. Again, just giving you some idea of how it was normally used. John 17, 15, it's the most natural uh, idea when Jesus prays, keep them from the evil one. Clearly, the disciples were not seen as part of the system of the evil one. Jesus was calling for them to be preserved completely out from it so that they would not be unprotected. And so coming back to Revelation 3, just in general, and we'll, we'll go much more uh, in detail next time, just wanting to introduce to you the idea the promise here seems most naturally to mean that they are to be kept from whatever it is this hour of testing is, which is about to come on the whole world to, dwell, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, as I said, the word rapture is, is just a term that means to catch away. It's used 14 times in the New Testament. The basic term means to steal or plunder or to remove completely, to take from something and move it somewhere else. That's where we get the idea of being caught up. In the end times use of it, it, it literally means that believers are going to be resurrected, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. They're resurrected and raised in newness of life. And it is to happen at the parousia, or the presentation of Jesus Christ, the presence of Christ alongside his people. That is its use when we think about the end times in the New Testament. Now, I also want to say that when we study the rapture, we, we have some presuppositions that we have to ba basically admit up front. I'm going to admit two presuppositions up front. First of all, I believe that, that, it, that I take a futuristic view of Daniel's prophecy, particularly chapter 9, which says that there is still one week of all of the 70 weeks that were prescribed by Daniel, that is to say 70 periods of seven years, that there is still one final seven-year period where God is going to deal with Israel, and I take Daniel 9 to mean that particular period, as opposed to the preterist view, which says that all of those things in Daniel's prophecy already happened. They already happened uh, when Titus Vespasian came in at 70 AD and destroyed the temple and took the Jews captive. I don't take that view. I take the futuristic view, which we talked about in chapter 1. 
So the presupposition here is that everything we talk about with regard to the rapture, everything we talk about, <clears throat> particularly regarding the tribulation period, which is described in Revelation 6 to 19, that is parallel to Daniel 9, 24 to 27. The futuristic view, the things yet to happen, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation period, seven years still yet to come for God to deal with Israel. That'll be a presupposition we will, that, that I will take all the way through this, and as I said, when we get a little further down the road, I'll show you why I think that's the case. The second presupposition is that I do believe in a literal millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And again, we don't have time to touch on the millennium <clears throat> in this particular series. We'll get through that as we uh, get further in the study of Revelation, but if you want a, uh, a great volume, our own Dr. Matt Waymeyer has written a great little volume on that subject uh, on Revelation 20 and the Millennial Kingdom. If you want a little bit more work from Dr. Waymeyer, which is easily accessible, very well written, very clear, you can pick up his new critique of, uh, of the amillennial view and why we believe in a literal millennial kingdom uh, where Christ reigns on his throne prior to the eternal state. Now, if we're talking about being kept from the hour of testing, and if we at least assume for the sake of argument that, that they'll be taken out of the tribulation period, that would mean then that the rapture would happen at the beginning of the tribulation. Now, as, as we get into a little bit of the discussion of the rapture, we just have to outline for you the three major views. This will be kind of fun, and then I'll talk a little bit about why I don't believe that the church appears in what is happening in this particular time period in the book of Revelation. I don't see the church part of chapters 6 to 19 at all, but before I do that, let me just outline the, the three major rapture views, and uh, wherever you land, you'll be able to identify with these. There is the pre-tribulational rapture view, meaning the church is caught up, and uh, at the beginning of that last seven-year period that begins this final week of 70 weeks or seven period, 70 periods of seven years, as Daniel talks about it, the final time when God's going to deal with Israel and her unbelief, the final time when the Antichrist is going to make a pact with Israel for three and a half years and then at that middle mark uh, desecrate um, their worship and set himself up as God and demand their worship, Antichrist is on the scene and, and the bloodbath begins against Israel. That would be a pre-tribulational view. The mid-tribulational view says that there's a distinction, a sharp distinction between tribulation and great tribulation mentioned in Matthew's gospel in the Olivet Discourse. And so they say that this, Revelation 6 to 19, and all of this trouble is really only describing the last three and a half years of that seven-year period. The last three and a half years. It is when the rapture occurs. It occurs at that middle point so the church is kept from the greatest difficulty in that seven-year period. Not the whole seven years, just the last three and a half years. The post-tribulational view uh, indicates that the, the rapture, rather, happens at the very end of the seven years. We go through the tribulation period. This is not a promise to keep you from the testing. This is a promise to keep the church preserved in their faith through the tribulation period. And at the end of the tribulation, the church is caught up to be with Christ and immediately then travels back to earth to be with him. So pre-tribulational rapture, it happens at the beginning of the seven years, beginning then the time of God dealing with Israel, and the church is caught up and kept from that hour of testing. The mid-tribulational view is that at the three-and-a-half-year mark, 
God catches the way the church to keep them from the great tribulation as described, the three and a half year mark. And then the post-tribulational view is the view that Christ comes after we've gone through the tribulation and ultimately then we come back to the earth with Christ to set up his kingdom after immediately being caught up to meet him in the air. Now, the pre-tribulational view has some basic objections, and I'm just going to summarize them for you. And as I said, you won't miss anything because we're going to cover them in a little more detail uh, in our next study. I just wanted to introduce it a little bit tonight. The general objections to the pre-tribulational view are simply these. If Christ catches away his church but doesn't return in judgment for the whole length of the tribulation, then doesn't that equate to two comings? Sometimes people struggle with the pre-tribulational view because they say, well, he comes, and then he goes away, and then he comes again at the end of the tribulation to set up his kingdom. Seems like there are two comings. He should have one second coming. And in their mind, that means he comes, and he doesn't catch his people away. He comes right, and he steps on the, the Mount of Olives, and he goes through the Golden Gate and up into the Temple Mount. Furthermore, they say, Matthew 24, 31, speaks of angels gathering the elect, and so if that gathering refers to the rapture, then the church would be caught up during or after the tribulation period, according to Matthew 24, 31, because that, that occurs during the great tribulation. So they say, look, if the gathering of the elect during the great portion of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, if that's the rapture, then, it was, it, then the, the rapture must occur somewhere in the middle or somewhere near the end. Another objection is that the imminence of Christ's return cannot mean he could return at any moment. So in other words, the next thing on the calendar, so they say, is for us to look for the signs of his return, at which point we're, we're going to be looking for the tribulation. We're going to look to go through it. We're going to see the events of the tribulation unfold exactly as Revelation says, and then we will know exactly when Christ is going to return. So he's not going to come at any moment. He will come as we look at the signs of the tribulation period. Why do they say that he could not come at any moment and the doctrine of imminence isn't valid? Well, because Jesus told his disciples that they would be witnesses to the whole world. And if Christ could have returned imminently at that moment after his ascension, how would there be enough time then to evangelize the whole world? Seems like a very, very strong argument against the idea that we're waiting for the beginning of this tribulation by the catching away of the church. Furthermore, Peter was told he would grow old Knowing this, then how could Peter and the apostles have believed in an imminent return of Christ? And we'll cover some of that ground as well in the coming weeks. So just giving you some of the arguments. They seem like pretty good arguments. Now with regard to the mid-trib view, the idea that Jesus comes right in the middle at the three and a half year mark, caught up to meet the Lord right at the mid-70th week point, uh, they say it happens when the temple is desecrated by the abomination of desolation. That is in Matthew 9, 27. That matches Matthew 24, 15. Daniel 9, 27, Matthew 24, 15, parallel. So at the three and a half year mark, there is this transition from the pact that the Antichrist made with Israel. And at the three and a half year mark, he sets himself up as God to be worshiped. And that begins a major bloodbath called the Great Tribulation. And so... Ultimately, they say that's when the rapture will occur, so the church is kept from that. The actual tribulation, they say, therefore, begins at Revelation 6.1. Uh, not at Revelation 6.1, but later on in the book. And so ultimately, the mid-tribulational view, um, you know, it has, it has some strong support if you remember that the Great Tribulation and the events of the Great Tribulation are, 
are frightening enough. Uh, they want to believe that the church at Philadelphia, like all other churches, are caught only out of that portion. Now, some objections to the mid-trib view. Daniel's mid-70th week transition from tribulation to great tribulation is dramatic, no doubt. But no explicit or implicit connection is made between the abomination of desolation and the rapture passages. So there's no indication that at that three and a half year mark, there's some explicit statement that says that's when the church is caught up. In fact, a strong case can be made that the tribulation begins when Jesus begins opening the end times scroll, which is in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The rider went out conquering. The second seal brings global wholesale hatred and war. The third seal causes massive famine. The fourth seal kills a fourth of the earth's population. And the fifth seal envisions the martyred saints calling for God's judgment on the world. The sixth seal ushers in a total breakdown of the cosmos along with global panic. And all of that occurs before the trumpet judgments of Revelation 11. So it's hard to imagine any greater tribulation than the first things that begin to happen. So if they say it happens at the midway point to keep us from great tribulation, I hardly know how they could skip over what happens in the first opening. The first opening scenes of chapter 6 are pretty massive. With regard to the post-tribulational view, just summarizing a few things, the church is caught up at the end of the tribulation, meeting the Lord in the air and immediately returning with him at his second coming. That's the post-trib view. They believe we go through the tribulation and that that will test our faith and we'll come out refined. They're not waiting for the rapture. They're waiting for the signs of the tribulation to begin. They're waiting for clear signs that it has begun. They're not waiting for an imminent return of Christ to catch his people away and to be raptured out of this particular portion. Now, there are some general questions that we have about that post-trib view. First of all, why does Revelation chapter 6 to 18 not mention anything about the church? I mean, this is a terrorizing, anti-Christian bloodbath against the saints. From chapter 6 to 18, there are no local fellowships in view seen doing anything that the church typically does. There are no local fellowships powerfully carrying out the ministry of the gospel, there are no church leaders or under shepherds tirelessly equipping and encouraging the saints during what Jesus called a time such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever shall be, Matthew 24. If we're going to go through the tribulation period, they have to answer the question, how is it that in chapter 6 to 18 there is no visible church doing anything of what the church was instructed to do now in all of the epistles? None of it's even visible. And furthermore, the Jewish believers, 144,000 of them, in Revelation 7, 3 through 8, they are not interacting with anything regarding local fellowships, local church fellowships. They're not even in view. Just the Jewish believers, the 144,000 protected male Jewish believers, they are in view. That's it. They're not interacting with believers in the church. They're not interacting with elders. There's no church leadership in, visible. The two witnesses of Revelation 11 and the gospel angel flying in mid-heaven, they seemingly have no interaction with the organized church at all. It seems to me that mitigates against a post-trib view to some degree. That question has to be answered. Moreover, just, just extrapolating on 
some of these implications. If the rapture comes after the tribulation, then, then what possible comfort would that have been to the Thessalonians who were told to comfort one another with the view that they would be caught up? Look, if they're not caught up till after they've endured all the tribulation, they, it seems to me, would have been rejoicing that some of their friends had died and missed it. Seems to me that if your loved ones are dead, you're not wishing they were here to see the coming of Christ because that would mean they'd have to go through all of this horrific event that happens. They would have rejoiced, but they were burdened. And Paul gives them comfort saying, look, you're, you're caught up. You remember I said that the, the gathering of the elect of Matthew 24, in this view it is equated with the rapture. Uh, it's also true that it might as well just be the gathering of believers who are converted during the tribulation. Could be just the believers that are martyred who are gathered in Matthew 24 as the elect when Christ comes in judgment. It doesn't necessarily have to be saints who are raptured. So that's not even clear. Furthermore, if the church goes through the tribulation but is also kept from God's wrath, then martyrdoms don't seem to make sense. Nor does Jesus' very specific prayer for protection, Revelation 3.10. He says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Martyrdoms don't really make sense if the church is going to go through the tribulation and this bloodbath. In fact, I would ask, if the rapture happens at the end of the seven-year period, why a rapture at all? Why a rapture at all if you just are caught up and then you come back with Christ immediately? A lot of post-tribulationalists have said to me that the, the rapture at the end of tribulation uh, protects God's people from Armageddon. Well, look, if we're preserved through wrath during the great and terrible tribulation, Armageddon seems to be a cakewalk. I mean, if God preserves us through the great and terrible tribulation, as they say, why do I need to be caught up and protected from Armageddon all of a sudden? That seems rather arbitrary. Furthermore, I'll just mention that if all believers will be resurrected and all unbelievers judged, as Matthew 25 indicates, when Christ comes back, all believers are resurrected, all unbelievers judged, then how will the millennial kingdom, if you believe in a literal millennial kingdom, how will it be populated with anyone that, that has a physical body and not a glorified body and can still have children who are then deceived by Satan at the end of the thousand years? Seems to me if all believers are resurrected, the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, and all unbelievers judge, you don't have anyone going into the millennial kingdom that isn't a glorified believer, and therefore you have no one to be given in marriage and have children who might be deceived at the end of the thousand years, as Revelation 20 indicates. So there's some questions that the post-tribulationalist has to answer. Let me just, in the remaining time we have, give you some of what I think are good implications just in general regarding the rapture of the church at the beginning of the tribulation period. This will just be food for thought as our time uh, sort of is limited tonight. Just some food for thought. Let me just say something about theological method. There, there is no reason to imagine that any time we study end times that that we are going to come to precise conclusions about every dynamic, particularly about the, the tribulation and the rapture, because uh, we're not working from explicit statements in Scripture. None of the views is so clear so as to not have questions. None of them. 
So we should not separate over these things or divide over these things, but we should explore them because in theological method, the point, when you don't have explicit statements, the point isn't to ignore the teaching or say, look, it's just, it just doesn't matter. The point is to, to work from implicit principles and inferences with all that is said about it and, and look to the view that you believe is the clearest and has the least amount of unanswered questions. Well, one of the areas that I think is very, very important in thinking about implications is this whole matter of the tribulation period itself when you read Revelation. You know, I've, I've been reading Revelation over and over and over again in preparation for our study of Revelation, and I just sort of like to get altitude and read. I don't like to always study passages in depth while I'm going through it. I just want to read it straight through. I want to get flow of thought. I want to get the feel of it. And as I'm reading and as I repeat the process and as my mind becomes saturated with the flow of thought and, and the, the events that happen from one to another, as my mind and heart become saturated with transitions of thought and all of those dynamics, some implications begin to become visible. Things that wouldn't otherwise be, be on your mind unless you took some time to think about it. And I'll just tell you this, most people who study eschatology and end times, their arguments um, aren't necessarily bad ones, but they, they're limited because there's only two or three. Sometimes they only have one argument, and that's all they've thought about. And I believe that when you're going to study these things, rather than, be, than have phobias about particular views, try to immerse yourself in every one of the views and try to read the texts with some altitude again and again and again and begin to think about implications regarding that. And I, as I began to do that, uh, there were some implications that came up as I read chapter 6 to 19, as I read the events of the tribulation, these horrific events that are, that are coming and that are prophesied here, some implications came up with regard to the timing of the church and its catching away. And it began to become important to me as I looked at Revelation 3.10 and this promise that the church is kept from this time of testing. Implication number one is that Revelation 6 to 19 preeminently features Israel and not the church. Now this is a very important point. When you read chapter 6 to 19, and that is a lot of material, and you're focusing exclusively on the time of God's judgment and the rise of Antichrist, the people being dealt with in that particular period of time the preeminent people being dealt with is not the church as we know it in the time of the Gentiles, written to by the Apostle Paul and the Apostles, these many epistles. Revelation 6 to 19 preeminently features Israel. For example, after the seal judgments begin, chapter 6, God marks out 144,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is seen again in chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, and verses 13 to 17. They are worshiping before the throne in the vision of chapter 14, having been purchased from the earth and set apart for God's service. So chapter 6, chapter 12, chapter 14, Israel is in focus, and in between those chapters you don't have any view of the church as we presently know it, or so it seems. 
Furthermore, there's, and this is significant, there's not one New Testament epistle that gives any clear instruction to prepare the church for the unprecedented horrors of the tribulation. Not one. This prophecy speaks of it, but prior to that, there's nothing. So with all the specific teaching and doctrinal and ethical instruction for the church concerning how the church is to conduct itself in the world, why is there all this detailed instruction for how we're to interact now with the world, but in the book of Revelation, there is not one view of the church. It's all Israel, and in the epistles, there's not one bit of instruction detailed to teach us how to deal with the 144,000, how to deal with the 12 tribes, how to deal with Israel as a nation. There's no counsel on how to face that, how to interact with Israel in any of the epistles of the New Testament. Furthermore, there's no counsel on how to face the wrath of the Antichrist. None. No specific instruction on how to face what happens with the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Oh yes, we're, we're taught to stay away and not believe in false messiahs and stand strong and be faithful from persecution, things like that. But when you read 6 to 19 in Revelation, you see what the Antichrist does. There are no epistles in the New Testament that give us specific instructions on how to deal with that kind of wrath. And what about gospel ministry? We have no teaching on how to further the gospel in the midst of the divine judgments that are raining down upon the earth. Here's another issue. There's no interaction with the two witnesses in Revelation 11. No interaction on the part of the church, church leaders, elders, any congregations, any time of the Gentile sort of congregations, Jew and Gentile together in a church, local assemblies. They're not visible interacting with the two witnesses. So it seems to me if there's so much explicit teaching in the New Testament for how we operate now in our earthly mission, which began at Pentecost, it, it seems beyond reasonable that we would have received something to prepare us for what we read in 6 through 19 in this prophecy. I'll tell you something else. Not one local assembly appears in these chapters doing anything that resembles the conduct of the household of God, as spoken in 1 Timothy 3.15. The pastoral epistles are full of specific instruction on how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God, in the ministry of the church. And in Revelation, however, there appears to be no local assembly regularly gathering for equipping the saints, no local assemblies ministering their spiritual gifts, no local assemblies training and affirming pastoral leadership or serving orphans and widows, no local assemblies disciplining unrepentant members. You can imagine in Revelation 6 to 19 that there would be some who defect. There's no discipline going on that we know it, know of. Nothing specifically spoken about. There's no church planting going on. There's no collection of money for the saints and gospel ministry. In fact, the only time true Christians appear on the earth in Revelation chapter 6 to 18, they are either part of the Jewish 144,000 of Israel, sealed and refreshed, or they are saints being slaughtered en masse, or they are worshiping in heaven around the throne or praying. The only time you see genuine Christians, they're either part of Israel or they're being slaughtered en masse as the Antichrist goes after Israel, or they're in heaven worshiping and praying, chapter 6, 8, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 18, or they are the two witnesses who don't interact with local assemblies, 
Prior to chapter 6, you have messages of warning that are sent to these seven churches in Asia Minor, actually five warnings and two commendations. After that, you see the scene in heaven, chapters 4 and 5, where all the saints are worshiping the Lamb, but after that, chapter 6 to 18, no local assemblies appear anywhere in the unfolding events of Revelation, and there are no instructions for any of that in the rest of the New Testament for that time period. There's a warning by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse to stay away from false messiahs, and he says that the wonders of the Antichrist are going to be so profound so as to even deceive the elect if it were possible. So profound will be those deceptions that if it were possible to deceive the elect, they'd all be swept up in the Antichrist's trickery and deception. It's going to be that scheming. You don't see... You don't see any instruction in the New Testament for how to deal with any of that. No local assemblies at all. Moreover, it seems that the parallels of Daniel's prophecy and Matthew's Olivet Discourse just seem to talk about this is the time of Jacob's trouble. These are parallel. The midweek abomination, Daniel 9, 26 and 27, and Matthew 24, verse 15. Same thing, Daniel 9, 27, Matthew 24, 21, the middle of the week, ushering in the great tribulation, also called 42 months, 1,260 days, Revelation 11 and 12, a time, times, and half a time, Daniel 7. You've heard all these terms, Revelation 12, 14. It seems that these are parallels. Israel being dealt with in Daniel 9 in this last period of seven years and Revelation 6 to 18 dealing with Israel. Daniel's prophecy parallels Matthew 24. These are the specifics of God dealing with Israel, and it includes the specifics of the Antichrist's covenant with Israel and his defiling of the temple on the wings of abomination who makes desolate, Daniel 9. So it seems to me that the parallel of Daniel 9 and Matthew 24 and 25 is that Israel is being dealt with here. Israel. And if Daniel's dealing with Israel during the tribulation, then Matthew 24 is dealing with Israel in the time of the tribulation. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. That indicates that ethnic Israel is being dealt with during the tribulation so that the non-elect can be judged and the remnant may be brought in, according to Romans 11. So one of the implications to me when I read chapter 6 to chapter 18 or 19 is that you don't see any of what we study and do expositions of in all of the New Testament literature about right what's going on right now. We're a local assembly. We have all that goes on in the conduct of the household of God, and we're to do that until, uh, it says, until the Lord comes for us. We're to do that all the way. But we have no specific instruction for dealing with that horrific time, and the church doesn't appear dealing with Israel at all, the 144,000, the two witnesses. They don't interact with anything. They're not even visible. That, to me, is a loud implication. It's also true that from Revelation 3.10, if we take it to be a promise of extraction, which I'll deal with further next time, the church then is promised Deliverance, And let me just say about that, that some texts strongly suggest that the church is to be delivered from the tribulation and its features of divine judgment. All the tribulation views agree that God's people are not under the judgment of God. That's true. 
And so therefore, we cannot be the recipients of his outpouring of wrath. We can't be his intended recipients. That is true. So all the views agree that throughout her history and until Christ returns, the church can or has and will continue to experience persecution and afflictions, but we're not the intended recipients of God's outpouring of his wrath. He pours it out on the wicked of the earth. And if the church is delivered from the time of God's outpoured wrath upon the wicked of the earth, then on what grounds would it be that he would protect us from that wrath? Well, it can't be because the atonement of Christ um, makes believers exempt from the tribulation. That's not true. We could go through it. Because those who are saved during the tribulation are also under the blood of Christ, and they will experience those things. So it it can't be because we're merely atoned that we're promised that we're not going to go through it. So why the exemption? Why the promise of extraction from it? Well, it's because God promised it to his people now. The tribulation saints will be a unique group, given a unique grace of God for a unique time as God deals with Israel. But God promised to the church and often stated it, I'm going to keep you from my wrath. My wrath is not intended for you, and I'm going to do it as a foundation of your hope and your comfort and your holy living. It was the sovereign plan of God, the sovereign decision of God to remove saints prior to the tribulation period. All those who get saved during the tribulation period, they're going to face it. They're going to face the Antichrist, and it will be a bloodbath like no other. They will be given a special grace, the Bible says. They will be given a special protection, special vindication. But right now, those whom he saved during the time of the Gentiles, Jew and Gentile, in local assemblies, right now, it is God's sovereign decision to remove them from the earth because he's promised it for our present and future comfort. It would hardly be comforting if he was saying, I'm going to leave you in it. He has a special plan for those saved during the tribulation But for now, he promises it for our comfort that he's going to remove us from that wrath. You know, it's interesting, too, just thinking about implications. The patience of God toward tribulation saints is unique to them. When you read Revelation, another implication comes off the page. The patience of God toward tribulation saints is unique since tribulation saints are not believers at the time of the rapture, but they're saved after the judgments begin, that, by the way, is another unique expression of God's boundless patience and his initiating grace, it seems to me. Think of it. After generations of gospel witness through the church of Christ on the earth, through us, through you and me, generations of gospel witness, and so far since the resurrection of Christ, 2,000 years of gospel witness, And men and women all over the globe have continued to reject Christ. In fact, the scriptures teach that as the last days approach, evil is going to grow from bad to worse. False religions and self-worship are going to permeate society, and hostilities against believers will increase, 2 Timothy 3 says. So if the church is caught up and received by Christ prior to the tribulation, then those who are remaining on the earth and left behind, they are still in their rebellion against the gospel, and they're in rebellion against such a great witness in the time of the church that it is hard to imagine God has any patience with any of them at all. And yet, He doesn't determine that they're finished. Nope. In fact, God, at the beginning of the tribulation and all through the tribulation, does such a marvelous, gracious work 
that the entire nation of Israel comes to Christ. Unbelievers are coming to Christ all over the earth, and then they pay with their blood. It could have been that God said, no more opportunities. You've rejected Christ through the whole church age. Multitudes of Christ rejectors, Jew and Gentile. And they go into the tribulation period, and they're being judged by God, and they're still rejecting Christ. How are they ever going to repent and believe? It seems like Christ would just walk away from them, but he doesn't. His grace is unique during this time. Unique. Amazing to me. I'll tell you something else that's unique. It is unique that believers experience a kind of affliction and endurance of tribulation such that is unprecedented. Because listen, beloved, you cannot read chapter 6 through 19 and we'll end with this, but the slaughter of believers, believers during that time is shocking to read. The saints who have been killed through the ages from Old Testament to New Testament will not match the bloodbath of just that seven-year period. The affliction and endurance of tribulation saints is unique. We experience persecution, but nothing like they will. And yet they will stand and go all the way to the end. Matthew 24, 21 and 22 says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, Jesus said. But for the sake of the elect, those days have been cut short. Wow, for the sake of the elect, God is saving his elect, and then they're gonna go and be slaughtered for their faith. That's true. You read it. I mean, Revelation 6, 3 to 11, by the time the fourth seal judgment is opened, multitudes of new believers have already been slaughtered. Revelation 9, 9 to 17, just before the seventh seal is opened and the trumpet judgments begin, an innumerable host of martyred saints are already serving God at his throne, already slaughtered. Multitudes more of the saints are overtaken and killed, Revelation 12 and 13. In fact, Revelation 13 says believers are compelled to either worship the beast or die, and they're all given the mark, verse 16, all given the mark of the beast or killed on the spot. You either take the mark or you starve in hiding or you're killed on the spot, verse 17 says. How many died in that way? Revelation 15, verse 2 indicates they couldn't be counted. They couldn't be counted. Some will survive and represent those who enter the earthly kingdom of Christ in their non-glorified bodies, but they could not be counted those that were slaughtered. So many are slaughtered, in fact, that the judgment of God rains down on them. The angels rejoice over it. Revelation 16 says this in verse 5 and 6, I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who is and who was, O Holy One, because you did judge these things for they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. Listen, Jesus judges the Antichrist and his evil system because of the amount of blood they spilled of the saints and the prophets during the tribulation. And it is so profound that even the angels give commentary on it. He says, you have given them blood to drink, and the angel says, they deserve it. They deserve it. That's strong language. Revelation 17, 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. 
Look, Jesus said this would be a frightening time for believers unlike anything in the history of mankind. One reason is that so many saints, brand new in the faith, are going to pay the ultimate price. So when we suffer today in the church today, the church today suffers some indescribable persecutions and martyrdoms all over the world and has since its beginning. But the horrors of the tribulation bloodshed will overshadow all of it. And God's children who've recently come to faith, the Bible says they will endure. It's a unique patience of God and a unique affliction and a unique endurance. What a testimony to his power. You would think it takes a mature believer to endure. No, they're going to get saved and die right there for their faith. Every tribulation saint who endures to the end in the face of those horrors vindicates the name of God, the character of God, and the promises of God. It may also be true that all who embrace Christ do so before the bold judgments. That's possible. The bold judgments are absolutely frightening and they come in rapid succession. Revelation 15, 1, and they are near the end of the seven years and as each bowl is poured out on the wicked of the earth, the death and destruction are of such massive, indescribable scale that Revelation 16 indicates that only the blasphemers are visible recipients of those judgments on the earth. So it seems that the bloodbath is over, the tribulation saints are, are killed, and no one else is receiving the mercy of God, and only the bold judgments are coming down, and blasphemers are shaking their fists at God as he rains them down, and they are absolutely frightening. So it seems to me when you read Revelation 6 to 19 and you don't see the church... When you read Revelation 6 to 19 and you see Israel, when you see Daniel 9 and Matthew 24 paralleled because it's describing the same period of time, this great and terrible tribulation, and you see the, the church being given instruction all through the New Testament for what we do today, but absolutely no instruction for that time, and you see Israel visible in the 144,000 who are chosen and the two witnesses and you see no interaction between local assemblies and those witnesses or the 144,000, all you see is a bloodbath of unique proportions and affliction of unique proportions, unlike any persecution we're experiencing right now. How can there be no instruction in all the New Testament for such a unique time? That has to be answered. Where are the local assemblies to which letters were written specifically by Christ in the opening chapters of this prophecy. Where are those local churches? There's no indication in the rest of the tribulation period that any of them exist at all. They're gone. Seemingly protected from the hour of testing, kept from it. After we uh, deal with the holidays... We're going to come back to this, we're going to go back to Revelation 3.10, we're going to go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, and then we're going to look at Revelation 6 to 19. And we're going to try to look at each of the three views, I'm going to try to demonstrate to you why the other two views have too many questions and the pre-tribulational rapture view has the least amount of questions. We're doing this because we want to know what this hour of testing is and the nature of it when it says it's about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Do we go through it or are we kept from it? If you're a post-tribulationalist tonight and you believe that the church goes through that, I know you wish you held my view. 
Just kidding. It is true that some of the complaint has been that we hold the preacher view because we just don't want to go through the tribulation. Well, that's true. I don't want to go through it. Do you? I don't want to. I admit that. But I actually, I actually am trying to deal with a promise here to a little congregation. What's the nature of the promise? And so we're going to try to put ourselves in the tribulation period and see if this promise fits. And we're going to try to take ourselves out of the tribulation, raptured ahead of time, and see if this promise fits. The view with the least questions, whichever one you hold, you can take whichever view you like. The one with the least questions, uh, we'll see which view that is. And we should never divide over these things, beloved, ever. I know that there are a lot of things to consider, and I threw a lot at you tonight. Um, if the Lord can help make sense of those things, that, that's great. In summary fashion, what we are saying is this is a promise of extraction, if indeed it's a promise that we're raptured out before time, before the tribulation period. In the meantime, I want you to read Revelation. I want you to read chapter 6 through 19. Get some altitude. Just keep reading it over and over again and ask yourself, what are the implications? Where is the church? Is the church in view? And how does this promise of Revelation 3.10 fit? All right. Let's thank the nursery workers for staying a little bit late. Lord, we thank you for tonight and so much to think about. Our minds are just swirling with so much. Whatever view we hold, we, we hold in good conscience. We hold based upon our study thus far. We never say to one another we have a corner on these views. And pulling the material together in, in a cogent fashion as we look at this sweet letter to this little congregation can be challenging. But I just pray that you'd make this a jump start, if you will, a way to think about our method of study and not be afraid to look at all of the passages and answer all the questions we can and, and to be satisfied even when our own view has questions that can't be answered. We're just trying to understand, Lord, what you promised here. You promised that because there, your word of your steadfastness was kept, then this church could find comfort in being kept from the hour of testing which has some components to it. It's about to come on the whole world and to test those who dwell on the earth when the test comes. It doesn't seem to indicate it's them, but it could be. We know that whatever you plan and purpose, we can, we can trust you. That help us seek to understand after we get through our holiday time and we come back to this great promise. Help us understand best we can what the next event is on your calendar, on your time clock. What is the next event? Do we, do we comfort one another with a rapture ahead of the tribulation? Do we comfort one another with a rapture somewhere in the middle or at the end? What is it we're supposed to make of this promise? We trust you and we look forward to all that we can learn from it. Thank you that you have promised vindication and ultimate glorification and that we cannot be lost. This would be too much to bear if we thought we had to face any persecution without your power securing your people. May we bask in that 